Well, good morning, church family, again. Let's pray together. God, thank you again for this morning. We come humbly before you, Lord, and just ask, not because we deserve it, but because we know it's your desire, that your church would be edified, that we would be instructed, that we would be corrected, that we would walk the path of righteousness, the path that Jesus laid out for us and went through the cross. And so this morning, God, we ask that you would shatter our misconceptions. We ask that you would purge us from our selfishness. You would help us to see the world and people through your eyes. That we could serve you well, that we could bring glory and honor to your name through the mission and ministry of your church. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in our Equip series in the Gospel of Matthew. So I would ask you, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 2, please. And as you're turning, I just wanted to ask a question and kind of start off this morning with, when you think of worship, what do you think of? It's a question I asked those kiddos during Poetry Pals, during the children's sermon. And I want to ask you, what is it that you think of when you worship? One of the things that I was, my first experience, I guess, as a Christian, as a young single guy in my 30s, it seemed to me that as I was immersed in churchy culture, that worship was synonymous with a style of music. What it meant to worship, and you can see up on the slide here, is several people, probably most of them younger, with hands raised, with concert lights blaring and smoke everywhere, and the idea of a Christian concert. And I want to preface this saying there's nothing wrong with Christian concerts. I'm not anti-Jeremy Camp or Casting Crowns or any of the more recent modern Christian groups and bands and singers. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but I think the issue that we have is that a lot of times we equate, we make worship synonymous with an experience like this. And that's not the fullness of worship. See, the problem with it is, is that the idea of as a young person, going to mom and dad and saying, hey, could I have money for a concert? Having someone drive you there, sitting in the audience or standing, passively listening to music, leaving the experience saying, that was awesome, and thinking somehow, some way that that is worship. And today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2 and the story of the Magi, the wise men, who came from far away. And I want us to kind of hold in our pocket, as the sermon is going on, the idea that these were men, a class of people, that more than likely traveled for close to two years to come to Jesus' house to worship him. And I want to ask a question this morning. Are we prepared to worship Are we prepared to worship? 
I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. I'm reading from the Holloman Christian Standard Bible. You can follow along in your version, or you can listen. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, Magi, wise men from the east, arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. So he assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men, the Magi, and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen in the east. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. After they were gone, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Get up! Take the child and his mother. Flee to Egypt and stay there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and escaped to Egypt. He stayed there until Herod's death, so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw he had been outwitted by the Magi, flew into a rage. He gave orders to massacre all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, in keeping with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they we're no more. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Today is about worship. It's about being equipped to worship. If you have a bulletin, the first point, recognize. If we look at Matthew 2, verse 2, it reads, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, And have come to worship him. See, we can't jump straight to worship without going through recognize or recognition. Recognition. 
Recognition means to be aware, to be attentive, not to be entertained, but to enter into a place and attitude of worship. These magi, as we're going to explore through the sermon today, these magi, it seems that it took them up to possibly two years to come to Jesus in that house with his mother and father and to worship him. Two years! Some scholars have dismissed the idea that it would have been somewhere as far as modern-day China, Mongolia, or India, that it would have had to have been somewhere closer, somewhere like Saudi Arabia or modern-day Iran or Iraq. Because the idea of traveling for two years at Jesus' birth, the star rose in the east and they saw it. The idea of someone traveling for two years to us is preposterous. Two years. We don't know that there were three of them. We know that there were more than one. There was more than one. Because in the Greek, it's plural. There could have been two, there could have been 200. We really don't know. But what's important is the fact that they recognized the rising of that star. The fact that not only did they recognize it, but they were looking for it. And I wonder, how many of us dismiss the idea that recognition, awareness, attentiveness is something that's needed in order to truly worship Two years. A journey that took them through lands filled with bandits. That they would be looking for food. They certainly couldn't have taken two years worth of food with them. On their trip, maybe they left, they departed originally with the the gifts that they presented to Jesus. If they didn't, they certainly had money to purchase them or something that they could trade. So they left prepared, equipped. They recognized the rising of the star. They went to it. And I want to point out a contrast in verses 3 through 6. The chief priests, the scribes of the people, were asked by Herod where Messiah would be born. They had the information. They had the information. But nowhere in Scripture do we read about a high priest, a Pharisee, a scribe, a Sadducee, going to Bethlehem to worship Jesus. Nowhere. You see, it doesn't do us any good to have the information and do nothing with it. I'm going to say that one more time. It does us no good whatsoever to have all the information, to have Holy Scripture, divine revelation of God, to come to church Sunday after Sunday, to listen to sermons on podcasts, to watch them on YouTube and Vimeo, to tune in, to read books and have all of the information and then do nothing with it. What that does is it doesn't categorize us, it doesn't associate us with the Magi 
this class of people who traveled two years to come and worship Jesus. Instead, it places us in the category of the chief priests, the scribes, the ones who had all the information. Oh, we know, Herod. We know it's going to be in Bethlehem of Judea. Because this is what was written. They had it memorized. They could quote it just like that. And they did nothing with it. And I wonder, are we ready to worship? If you're listening to this through the website, we have a slide up. It's a picture of a bunch of young women at a a game of some sort, and they're all taking selfies and blowing kisses at their cameras. And the quote reads, this is not from scripture, this is from someone here today in our generation, says, never has a generation so diligently documented themselves accomplishing so little. Social media the information that our young people have access to. Never before has a generation had the power in their hands that our young people have today. And I ask, young people, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with the information? What are you doing with the tool that sits before you? Are you using it? as a weapon to kick down the gates of hell and to rescue the lost and advance the mission of God? Or is it to perk up your lips and take selfies and publish garbage on social media that's not impacting the kingdom, that's not glorifying God, that's doing nothing whatsoever? Selfie. This is my definition. I tried to make it look like it was created on the internet that this would be what you would find, but it's actually my definition. A photograph one has taken of oneself to evidence the deep-seated attitude and belief, I, in fact, am the center of the universe and everything exists for my personal benefit, enjoyment, and pleasure. Selfie. We think, well, that's a modern-day development. Well, the selfie may be, but selfishness, the attitude of rejecting God and everything being about me isn't anything new. Don't feel bad, young people. I'm not picking on you. The old commercial says, son, where did you learn to do drugs? And the boy responds, I learned it from watching you. Young people, I'm not picking on you because you learned it from watching us. The selfishness, the attitudes, the world exists for me and me alone. Mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, they've learned it from watching us. Brings us to our next point, respond. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem. Seems kind of strange that I would begin with verse 2 and backpedal. But see, in order to recognize 
in order to arrive, you've got to recognize. In order to come to a place where you can recognize and be aware, in order to respond, that has to happen. So Matthew's gospel begins and it says that they arrived unexpectedly. But they had to do something before they arrived. And I wonder how many of us think that we can respond in a spirit and a sense of worship without ever having recognized, without ever really being aware, without ever being attentive to Christ, his mission, the cross, his love, his sacrifice, because we're too busy with ourselves, our complaints. A couple of weeks ago, as we wrapped up our series Connecting the Dots in Proverbs 1-7, I took a poll at the beginning of the service and asked you to fill out some cards about the biggest complaints in your lives. And if you haven't seen the feedback that I posted on our website, I'm going to give you a quick breakdown. Our complaints. Our complaints out of about 140 responses, a little bit over a third of those responses had to do with problems, complaints regarding our relationships. I see mom and dad fighting Mom and dad having problems with children doing the things that they ask them. Employers having problems with their employees. Employees having problems with their supervisors and employers. It fell into a category of relationships. The next largest one was about responsibilities. The biggest one that stood out was our young people responding, saying, I hate school. Homework is stupid. I don't like it. I don't understand it. I don't know why I do it. I don't want to do chores. I don't want to do anything that anyone asks of me because I have a right to my own life. And mom and dad, all you're doing is stealing my joy. I want you to read the story of the prodigal son, young people, when you go home and see how that turned out for him. He wanted his dad's inheritance. He didn't want his dad. He didn't want the relationship. And pretty soon he found himself desiring the food that the pigs were eating. See, when you respond, I hate this, I despise that, I only wish I could, except that everyone around me, my teachers, my parents, everyone is trying to steal my joy, means you have a sense of entitlement and you can't respond to the gospel with a spirit of worship. It's impossible. The next category was about time. I don't have enough time. I've got too many things going on. My plate is overburdened. I'm overladen with stuff. There's no margin in my life to do the things that I know that I need to do. And I wonder if we don't realize that those things are self-imposed. No one put a gun to our head and told us to buy the house that we bought that made us house broke. No one told us that we had to buy a vehicle that we couldn't afford. No one told us that we had to go to a certain school, live in a certain neighborhood, buy the kinds of clothes that our friends and the people that we want to socialize with would admire. Nobody told us that we had to do those things. Those were our choices. But then we complain about not having enough time. 
And the thing that's amazing is it doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter what social class you fall into. Everybody feels that way. It doesn't matter if you're Jerry Jones and you make millions and millions of dollars. He has the same complaint as the person who lives very meagerly. And they say, I don't have enough time. See, because we all overspend. We all think that we are entitled to something more than the lot that we've been given. Several of the responses were about the weather that we have no control over. Several responses were about our age and our health and our aches and our pains. I was one of those people. 50 is a horrible number. And I heard it just keeps getting better. (laughs) Finances and politics. There were only three responses in all of our complaints and concerns. Only three responses that had anything to do with church, the ministry of the church, and the mission of God. Three out of over 140 responses. So you can't arrive until you recognize. You can't respond in a spirit of worship. Close to a two-year journey. Two years. And if you don't believe me, you can look in verse 16. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the wise men, the Magi, he flew into a rage, and he gave orders to massacre all the male children. And that word in Greek... It doesn't refer to toddlers. It's a specific word that refers to children that are about the age of two and on up. Young people, children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. In keeping with the time he had learned from the Magi. Two years. It was a two-year journey. I know I keep bringing it up, but I want us to wrap our brains around that. Is there anything that we would do today that we would put ourselves out the way that these men did? A two-year journey. Well, it's a little rainy today. I don't think I'm really going to get up and go to church. Well, it's a little too sunny today. Last week, the pastor, his sermon was a little bit too long, and today I've got, I've got plans for brunch. I don't want to miss brunch. Two years! Rejoice, our next point. In Matthew 2.10, here's what it reads. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. So you can't skip, number one, recognize, and two, respond, and straight to rejoice. But we want to do that, don't we? I want to get straight to the joy, God. Give me the good stuff. And God says, well, you know, you're going to have to do what these magi did. You're going to have to actually read your Bible so that you can get informed, so that you can be aware, that you can recognize in the book of 1 Kings, it talks about how Elijah was standing there and it says that there was a strong wind, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. And it says there was an earthquake, but the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And then there was a fire, 
but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And then came a zephyr, a gentle wind. And I wonder, are we attuned to that gentle wind, that zephyr, when God speaks ever so softly and says, it's two o'clock in the morning, but there's someone who needs you to pray for them. And we say, that would be great, God, but it's two o'clock in the morning. And so I'm going to put you on mute. I'm going to put you on pause. And since tomorrow's Saturday, when I get up around nine or 10 o'clock in the morning, or if you're a teenager, around three, when I finally get up, then maybe after I've taken my selfies and after I've checked up on all my social media accounts and I've posted things that have nothing to do with anything, then maybe, what was it that you wanted me to do? Oh, I can't remember. See, we can't skip one and two. These magi, they found the treasure that spoken of in the Gospels. They found the great pearl. They were convinced enough to sell everything that they had and embark upon a two-year journey. And I wonder again, what does it take for us to be deterred? I think sometimes we show up to church just so that we can check a box. And I'm pretty confident that these folks didn't embark on a two-year journey to come to worship Jesus to check a box. I'm pretty confident of that. Nobody embarks on a two-year journey seeing the elements, bandits, disease, and death just to check a box. It's not going to happen. If you're going to embark on a two-year journey, it's got to mean something to you. You're going to put yourself in harm's way. It's got to mean something to you. And I wonder what really means, what really means something to us that we would do what they did. If God called you you to a mission trip in a country like Liberia, somewhere where there's malaria and disease and no infrastructure and poverty and the after effects of civil war, Would you go? Would you be attentive? Our next point is receive. I think our concept of receiving is pretty messed up. In 2.11, Matthew 2.11, it reads, Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and falling to their knees... They worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I've asked you, what happened in that people might say, well, they gave Jesus something. They didn't give Jesus anything. They received. They received something from Jesus. And I think that's one of the obstacles that we have to worship. Oftentimes in our culture, we say it's better to give than to receive. But see, the reality is, is only in the giving of ourselves completely, unreservedly, and with total abandon to Christ that we truly receive him. See, we want to give a little bit of ourselves to Christ. We want to pray the magical prayer. We want to dabble in Christianity and in the culture. We want to put the fish on the back of our car. 
Maybe put the cross up in our front yard on Easter. Maybe even put a lighted nativity scene in our front yard around Christmas time. Is there anything wrong with any of those things? No. Going back to the story of Cain and Abel, the problem isn't necessarily with what we do. The problem is that God can see our hearts and the attitudes therein. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They brought gifts. We could speculate, and that's all we're doing, is many commentators and biblical scholars have said, well, gold was because Jesus, they wanted to recognize him as king, as the Lord, and that it's a symbol of us being vassals. It's being the underlings. Is looking at him as, you're our Lord and you're our protector. And we're submitting ourselves to you. It's a possibility, but it doesn't tell us that in Scripture. It says that they brought frankincense, which was an incense that oftentimes would be burned in ceremonies, religious ceremonies. And some biblical scholars and commentators have noted saying that the incense was a sign that these magi, these wise men, were recognizing Jesus' deity as God. It's possible. What we do know is that they got down on their knees and they worshipped him. That they traveled for two years. And they also brought myrrh. Some commentators have gone so far as to say, well, the myrrh was brought because it was a recognition of the fact that because Nicodemus brought the same kind of thing, 75 pounds worth of myrrh and spices to Jesus' tomb in order to bury him. See, because when people die, they stink. When people die, they stink. Because there's decay. Christ didn't decay. He didn't stink. But Nicodemus didn't know that. What he brought forward was myrrh and aloe and spices to Jesus' tomb. And some people say that these wise men, these magi, they brought it forward in order to recognize the fact that someday Jesus would die for our sins. It's possible, but it's not stated explicitly in Scripture. What we know is that they traveled for approximately two years to come to Jesus and to fall on their knees and their faces and to worship him. And then it tells us in verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Would you travel two years to have a moment of worship in the presence of Christ and then immediately turn around and begin your trek back? See, because what Matthew's gospel is about is about being equipped. And they were equipped From the very beginning, they recognized, they responded, they rejoiced, they received, and then they returned. See, because it wouldn't do them any good to stay there in Jerusalem, they went back home, wherever that may be from. Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, India, modern day China, wherever it was, we know that they went home. And our last point for this morning, reality. I think this is an area that we really struggle with. As Christians, we struggle with the reality of what it means to truly surrender, to truly worship Christ. In Matthew 2.16, as I've read earlier, and I'll read it again, then Herod, when he saw that he had been outwitted by the Magi, flew into a rage, 
He gave orders to massacre, to slaughter, to murder all the male children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under. In keeping with the time he had learned from the wise men, the Magi. Y'all realize that's not how Hollywood would write the script, right? You don't see that in a Hallmark movie. Disney doesn't write about those kinds of things. It doesn't say in those kinds of modern day stories, it doesn't it doesn't paint that picture. You don't see that in the in the animated Christmas show, The Star, the movie. It doesn't show the Magi departing. It doesn't show boys age two and under being slaughtered. It doesn't show Joseph taking his family because of being warned in a vision in a dream that he needed to flee and to go to Egypt. See, it can't be worship if it's out of touch with reality. And I wonder if in our lives, our expectations, our feelings of entitlement, and what church and what worship and what Jesus should be is so far removed from the reality of Scripture that we never truly enter into a state of worship. Well, God, you know, I don't really like what's going on at the church. I don't really like the idea in Scripture that you're telling me that I need to be prepared to suffer, that I need to be prepared for trials. I don't really like that idea. It can't really be worship if it's out of touch with reality. So the question today, as we begin to prepare for our time of invitation, is the same one that we began with. Am I, am I truly prepared? Am I equipped to worship? Have I recognized? Have I responded? Do I rejoice in and who Jesus is and who I am in him because of what happened at the cross? Have I received him? And is Christ my new reality? Is he my new identity? Am I prepared like those magi, like those wise men to go wherever God wants me to go and to do whatever it is that he wants me to do? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, those magi journeyed for a long, long time to come to the place where you were in that house with your mom. We don't know what they faced, but I'm sure the journey wasn't easy traveling through heat and cold and rain. And evidence from Scripture seems to suggest that it could have taken them up to two years to get there. God, I pray that you would give us a passion that the Magi had, that you would give us a desire to worship you where our hearts would be lifted up to the skies that we would look deeply into your word, that we would scour it for the truth of who you are 
and that it would profoundly change our lives. That wherever you call us to go, that like your servant Abram, that when you said go, Abram went. He didn't ask whether or not the tickets were going to be first class. He didn't ask whether or not there was going to be a house and food waiting for him. You said go, and Abram went. You revealed yourself to those magi. They were prepared, and they got up and they went. Instruct our hearts, God. Help us make this time that we have together truly worship. Help us not to make it just simply churchy culture, but a time when we can surrender our hearts, our lives, our souls, our everything to you. Help us to call out to you if we don't know you, God. Help us, help us to call out to you and say, God, I don't know how to get to where you are. Send a guiding star, a light that would instruct me. And that's your word. Send your spirit to help us respond. Whatever that might look like today, I ask that you would respond in faithfulness and obedience to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and to God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.